Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Chris Pavoni at Washington County Library, R.H. Stafford. Chris Pavoni burst onto the mystery thriller scene in 2012 with The Expats, a chart-topping spy novel centered around an unassuming American housewife who stumbles upon evidence of a major conspiracy while safeguarding a secret of her own. His debut earned Pavoni both Edgar and Anthony Awards. The international bestseller is currently in print in over 20 languages and being adapted for a major motion picture produced by Kevin Spacey. None other than Stephen King singled out Pavoni's 2014 follow-up, The Accident, as one of the best nail-biters of that year. His newest, The Travelers, centers around a disillusioned travel writer who finds himself caught in a web of international intrigue that takes him to Argentina, Iceland, and many points in between. Notes the New York Times, The Travelers confirms what Mr. Pavoni's first two books have established, that when it comes to quick-witted, breathless thrillers that trot the globe, his are top tier. Thank you for coming. Uh, Thank you for coming in this weather. When I was contacted about coming to Minnesota in early March, I thought that it sounded like a dubious proposition weather-wise, but I didn't expect it to be because of thunderstorms. I was really hoping for some snow. Um, my parents were New York City public school teachers, which meant that they had all summer off every summer and not really any money. So what they did in order to amuse themselves and their children every summer was go on a massive two-month-long road trip. We left New York and got to the border of Mexico four days later, and then we spent the rest of the summer driving around Mexico and Guatemala and Belize uh, using a book called Mexico and Guatemala on $5 a day, which in the middle of the 1970s got revised to be Mexico and Guatemala on $10 a day. And that's how we lived, driving around all summer, every summer for all of the 1970s, which is why my first idea of what I wanted to do for a living was to be a cartographer, which I'm awfully glad that I didn't decide to do because I don't think there are cartographers anymore. But that's my earliest recollection of what it is that I wanted to do for a living. Um, my first actual job was being a draftsman for the Environmental Protection Agency. 
It was a summer job between my junior and senior years in high school, which I started when I was 15 years old. And my first day on the job, my boss explained to me that I would be redrawing these blueprints of a secondary fire water system that used salt water from the Atlantic Ocean in Coney Island to put out fires. It was non-potable water, so it needed to have its own pipe system. It was a very old system, and the BAPs were falling apart and they needed to be redrawn, it was my boss's job to redraw them, but he got me as an intern, and so he stopped coming to work. I didn't see him again except sporadically, like on Fridays until the end of the summer. I didn't think that that was unusual because it was my first job. I didn't understand what it was that people did. And then I went to a university that was expensive, and my parents couldn't afford it, which meant that I, never stopped having jobs all throughout college. I would come home for spring break and get a week-long job. I would come home for winter break and work for three weeks. I worked all the time. I worked, uh, I worked in New York as a paralegal for five or six different law firms ranging in size from two lawyers to 600 lawyers. Um, I worked as a uh, draftsman. I worked as a bartender and uh, sandwich maker. I pruned Christmas trees. Um, that was a job that I had for only two days, Monday and Tuesday. It was a horrible, horrible job. It entailed walking through a field with a machete and swiping trees, and every half hour or so it was inevitable that you would hit a hornet's nest and have to run away. So the field was always filled with people running away, <laughs> holding machetes. Uh, it was, and so I started that job on a Monday. And then Tuesday, Tuesday nights, there was a bar in town that had a special called Dimey's, which meant that you could buy beer for a dime. And I did not wake up on Wednesday morning early enough to get into the back of that pickup truck uh, for the 45-minute ride out to the field where I would prune Christmas tree. So that was the end of that job. Um, when I got out of college, I realized that I wanted to work in book publishing or publishing in general. I thought that I should work at the New Yorker. They hired one or two people a year, and I was not one of them. So instead, I worked for a friend of mine at a professional magazine publisher whose titles included things like Middle Market Lending Letter and the Journal of Accounting. This was the opposite of the New Yorker. Um, I worked for a newspaper that was sold by homeless people. Um, I was an editor and a reporter, and I started that job in, I think, September. And everything was going fine until late November when it started to get cold, and I realized that we couldn't afford to heat the office. And uh, by the end of December, we had to close down because it was 30 degrees in, in the office, and that's not okay. So that was the end of that job. I worked as a puzzle editor, crossword puzzles. I did crossword puzzles all the time, and I eventually did it for a living for a few years. And then I got bored of doing crossword puzzles as a profession, and I went to the human resources department of the larger company that owned the place I was working in. I was working at Dell Puzzle Magazines. The larger entity was called Bantam Doubleday Dell. Bantam and Doubleday and Dell were all book publishing houses, and their offices were in a nicer building in a better part of town, 
and I went over there to HR, I set up an appointment and I uh, said I'd like a new job, I don't want to do this anymore, is there anything else I can do at this company? And they gave me a copy editing test, I didn't really know what copy editing was. Uh, I studied for a couple of weeks and I took the test and then I had some interviews and then I started a new job. I was a copy editor at Doubleday, I think I was 23 years old when I got this job. And my first week there, I started on Monday, the easiest thing for a copy editor to do. Copy editor's job is to make sure, as Holden Caulfield would say, that all the commas are in the right places. Needed to make sure that there were no misspellings, that there are no horrendous errors of grammar or judgment or fact. The easiest thing in which to do this sort of job is a children's book. I was given a children's manuscript. Doubleday didn't really publish children's books, but one or two a year as a favor to somebody for some reason that I didn't completely understand until later. But this was given to me on Monday, and I looked up all the words that were possibly misspelled. Zero of them were misspelled, but one of them, one of these words was three syllables, and I thought that that may be one syllable too many for the intended audience, which was under eight years old. So I wrote a note on the page suggesting that this word was perhaps too long and here are some simpler alternatives. And I gave the manuscript back to the editorial assistant who like me was a 23 or 24 year old person who gave it to his boss, the editor, who looked it over and then messengered it to the author. The author read it over, messengered it back to Doubleday um, where it was given to the editor who walked down the hall and came up to my office, my little interior office without a window, filled with encyclopedias and shoeboxes filled with maps and all sorts of reference books. And she knocked on my door and said, are you Chris? And I said, yes. And she said, hi, I'm Jackie Onassis. And that was the editor of this book. And the, the, the author was a friend of hers, Carly Simon. Um, and this was the why we were publishing this book and this was why it was my first task and it was on that Thursday of my first week in the office when I met Jackie Onassis and I worked for Doubleday then for a few years and then I got tired of that and I moved on to be the managing editor of a very small publishing house that specialized in books about fly fishing which I did not know how to do but that didn't matter and I left there and I went to work for a division of HarperCollins which was at the time perhaps the largest publishing company in the world. In any case, it was the media company that was largest in the world. It was owned by um, Fox, uh, and they owned many things, as they still do. Um, I worked there a very brief time because my boss was a well-known lunatic, and she'd hired four editors, a whole new staff, in one month. And I quit after three months. And as the person who quit after three months, I was not the first quitter. Somebody had beat me to it. Um, the other two people somehow managed to last not only 15 years working there, but in between they also married each other. So I was at HarperCollins and I quit there too. Um, I'm a firm believer in quitting. I have at this point now quit more than 30 jobs in my life, but we're getting towards the end of my quitting. So after HarperCollins, I went and I got a job as a cookbook editor at Clarkson Potter which is what I did for six years. And this was at the beginning of the Food Network being really popular. And it was one of my jobs to go out to dinner a lot to really good restaurants at which I would not get a bill. Um, and 
They would just throw food and wine at me, and this went on all over the country, and that was a, a really terrific job, and I was, had a great time doing it, and that's why I did it for six years, which I, my longest previous job had been, I think, two or two and a half years. And then I made this mistake that people make, which is I got seduced by the promise of a bigger salary um, and a bigger office for a fancier job title for a job that I didn't particularly want to do and didn't think that I would be good at. And as it turned out, I was right. I was bad at it and I hated it. It was uh, being an associate publisher, which is a job that's very much about business, about generating more revenue and cutting down on expenses and renegotiating contracts with vendors and firing people, which I'd never had to do before, and hiring new people who cost less, and I hated everything about it. And I went to my boss and said, I really don't think I'm doing a good job here. I don't think this is the job for me. And he gave me sort of pep talk. This was his company. It had his name on it. It, was, it still is the largest independent publisher in the United States. And he told me that I should wake up every morning and think of this division that I was running as uh, a business that I'd started in my own garage. And first things first, every day, what am I going to do today to make this business more successful? And if you do that, you'll have a great time and it will be successful. And this was his pep talk to me. And I left and I thought about it and I realized that that's how he lived his life and that made him into an extremely successful publisher. But I almost couldn't imagine anything worse. I would much rather get a machete and go back and prune Christmas trees again and run away from wasp's nest. So I quit the next day after, after the pep talk. The pep talk was a failure on every front, except to get me to quit if that's what he wanted to do. He succeeded and I did quit. Um, and I was 38 years old. I had uh, two twin boys. I still have twin boys. They were two years old at the time. Um, the, uh, an apartment in New York City and a weekend house in the country that we just bought. So I had two mortgages and, uh, and no job. <laughs> it was horrible. Um, and I didn't really, I hadn't fully thought, what am I going to do? I just realized that if I was going to do something else with my life, it was time to start now. It was time to stop being a book editor now and not just end up as somebody in a corner office because you stuck around and never left. And luckily my wife had a good job um, and health insurance and we were not immediately panicked about how we we're going to survive. But as I was on the phone, telling all these authors I'd worked with over the years. I quit, goodbye, I'll see you. A couple of them asked me if I would consider collaborating with them on projects. And I, I specialized in the type of really light nonfiction books, which are very often ghostwritten or at least co-written. Most of the books by chefs, by celebrity chefs on television, um, by all sorts of people who do things like that, wedding planners, famous mixologists, anything in the food section, all sorts of gardening books, almost all of those at a certain level are ghostwritten because those people, it, and this includes, by the way, also senators and surgeons and 
most presidential memoirs. And you know, the people who are really good at doing something, that something is not necessarily writing. And even if they are good at writing, most of them don't have the time to take a year or two off from whatever it is that they're good at to write a book. So if somebody is really, really well known for doing something and they've written a book, chances are they probably didn't do that on their own. And I became one of those people briefly. I ghost wrote, that was a combination of co-wrote and ghost wrote, uh, a book about very glamorous weddings. And I wrote a book about cocktails. And that year and change of ghostwriting books was one of the most enjoyable I've ever had. And uh, the both people I was working for were really great to work for in a way that I rarely had with bosses in offices. And my lifestyle was much improved. And now it was only one of us in the family who worked a 60-hour week. And when children needed to go to the doctor, or the dog needed to go to the vet, or the car needed to get repaired, I was always the one to do it. And I didn't love that part of it, but it also wasn't a disaster. It wasn't the type of, oh my God, who's going to take the sick kid to the doctor? I have a meeting at 9 and 9.30 and 10 and 10.30 and 11. You have to do it. And we didn't deal with that anymore because I didn't have any meetings anymore. I just said, all right, I will take the kid to the doctor or the dog to the vet or the car to the shop. Um, and I did that for a year and change until my wife came home from work one night and said, what would you think of living in Luxembourg? And at this point, we'd been together a while. Um, I was about to turn 40 years old. Uh, I'd lived in New York City my whole life. I was a pretty honest person with my wife and with everybody in general. But at that moment when she asked me what I would think of living in Luxembourg, I failed to be honest in a very particular way because I couldn't admit that I didn't know exactly what Luxembourg was. I knew where generally, but I didn't know whether it was a country or maybe a state in Germany or a city. As it turns out, it's a city and a country. Um, it's a very small city and a very small country, and it's bordered by Germany and Belgium and France, and my wife uh, had just started the process of possibly getting a job there. She figured that she would consult me first before it went too far. Um, we went on a preview trip, is what it's called, in June to Luxembourg. And June in Northern Europe is very nice. Everything is in bloom, and it's light all the time. We went out to a great dinner just finished at a quarter after 10, I remember, and it was still light out, and the streets were filled with all these young people smoking and drinking and having a great time. And uh, after being in Luxembourg for two days, we'd seen it was a beautiful place. We could live here. I can live here. She can get a job here. We can move here. And at this point in my life, uh, although my little brother had spent years living in China, I myself had never lived anywhere except New York City and the small town in upstate New York where I'd gone to college. And I'd never even seriously entertained the idea of moving to the east side. I'd spent my life in a very, very specific place. And I felt that it was a sort of hole in my life experience and my bravery to have never gone anywhere else. And here was this great opportunity 
to go to Luxembourg, and I didn't even have to do anything in particular. I just had to say yes and go. So we did. And we left New York at the end of August when it was really hot and humid in summer. And we got to Luxembourg on September 1st, and it was already autumn. It was 55 degrees and raining. And unlike in mid-June, it was getting dark out earlier and earlier. It was raining really all the time. And when it wasn't raining, it was gray. And I had no idea that in Northern Europe, although June is fantastic, the rest of the year is sort of horrible. Um, and you know, we didn't see the sun for weeks on end. And then it was for five minutes before the clouds blew in again. There was even a name for this in French, La Grisea, which is the grayness that just hangs over Europe for six or seven months out of the year. Um, but the weather was just the weather. The worst of it was everything else, which was, first of all, I was home with these two children, four and a half year old twin boys, who, although I'd been living with them for their whole lives, it had never been all the time. I went to, even as a ghostwriter, I left the house every morning at eight o'clock in the morning when our babysitter showed up, and I went out and I did my work, and I, I had lunches with friends, and I played tennis, and I did this and that, and then I came home at six, and I stopped, would stop in and walk the dog, but other than that, I couldn't be home because they would throw up their hands and run at me like they were trying to attack me. Um, and I, I had never spent day in and day out for weeks, months on end in the company of these children, and I didn't know how to do it. It's, I, I don't think it's something you just know how to do, or if you do, you're not me. I didn't know how to do it, certainly not well. I also didn't know how to speak French, really, and this was a country where you needed to speak French. I didn't know how to be a person without a job, which I'd been doing all the time since I was 15 years old. Um, I didn't know how to be this person who I needed to be, this expat trailing spouse, of which there were many in my life, but I was really the only man. And every day at school pickup, there were 150 or so parents picking up children from the St. George's International School at three o'clock in the afternoon. And of those 150 people, three of us were men, and those other two guys gave me the creeps. I was once set out, set up to go on a sort of man date with one of them, and he misread everything about me so intensely that before we'd even got our food at lunch, I was thinking to myself, this is hopefully the worst date of my life, and it's with a guy, and there's no way for me to leave. I can't just say, no, I, I, and, and then I needed to continue to see this guy every day, and we were not friends. My friends were all other men's wives, which was a strange situation to be in. Um, in New York, there were, and there still are, uh, at my kids' schools, um, at pickup any day, it's certainly not parody, but at least one out of every five people, one out of every four people is a dad picking up the kids from school. But at Luxembourg, in Luxembourg, it was, you know, it was nobody. It was, it was bizarre. Um, I also didn't know how to drive a car all the time, which I'd never done, and I was constantly crashing it. Um, and then bringing it to the garagiste who, on our first meeting, spent a solid 15 minutes lecturing me in French about how everything in Luxembourg was better than everything in the United States. And 
I didn't really want to argue with the guy. I just wanted to get the car fixed, but he would not allow me to just go about my day without this um, lecture on everything that was bad about my country. And I didn't even necessarily disagree, but I was not there for that. I was there to get the car fixed, which I was crashing so much, which was embarrassing. And my kids even laughed at me. They would sit there in the backseat buckled in as I scraped this used Audi against the side of our garage. I didn't know how to cook all the time. I'd been a cookbook editor and I cooked for elaborate dinner parties that I had because that was fun, but that's not the same thing as providing um, every meal for a family day in and day out. There's no such thing as convenience food in Luxembourg. There was no such thing as ordering in. There was going to a restaurant or there was cooking. There was fast food, but um, due to a very smelly road trip I took in 1987 with friends of mine from, from upstate New York to Vermont to go skiing, and it was four guys sitting in a small car eating McDonald's, and I thought to myself, I can just never do this again. I can never, ever eat McDonald's again and see if I can make it through life that way. And I expanded that quickly to encompass all fast food. So I haven't now had fast food in 30 years. Um, so I didn't eat that in Luxembourg, but it was that or cooking. And so I cooked all the time, all the time I cooked. I did laundry all the time. Um, all my appliances were in German. I didn't speak German. And a lot of these things that you need to know to operate appliances, they're not really words that you find in dictionaries because they're combinations of like two or three words. And I kept using the same settings on my stove because they were, they sounded good. Intensive Bakken and Uber into Hassen. But the laundry beguiled me. So the, we had one machine. It was a washing machine. We washed laundry. There was no dryer. Couldn't figure out where in the apartment we would put the dryer. We went shopping for a dryer in Germany. People said, you have to go to Germany to buy your appliances. We went to Germany. We got distracted. We got lunch. We never got a dryer. We also had not figured out we were going to put the dryer. So we didn't buy the dryer. In the meantime, I bought a drying rack. Do you know, anybody know what a drying rack? Like these folding metal things. I was drying clothes constantly. Um, I immediately, after a week of this, told the children, the time of your lives when you wear pajamas is finished. We no longer wear pajamas in this household. You simply take off your pants and you go to sleep in that. So I cut down on 20% of my laundry by rejecting pajamas. But still, I was doing laundry all the time um, and burning food because not everything worked with intensive Bakken. Uh, when I decided to translate my stove because the cooking part was more important to me. So I translated all the settings on the oven and I made little post-its to indicate what they were. So I started the cooking going better. And then while I was at the translation of the appliances, I decided to translate the washing machine, even though I really didn't want to, because who cares? And there were so many words. Um, and I sat there on the floor. There was no place to sit. And I had my computer and my German dictionary. And I looked up all the settings on the washing machine. And I came across one. It was like the 20th word that I came across that meant dry. And that's when I realized that why would a washing machine have a dryer unless it is actually a dryer too? So it was a dryer. And that freed me from the tyranny of the drying rack, but not completely because you put like three pairs of boys jeans in there and the drying washing cycle took three hours and everything still came out sort of moist. 
but not soaking wet. So my, I started my laundry, it's only every other day that I was doing laundry. The rest of the time it was simply drying. That was not a, that was not a high point of me doing any of this. So we lived for a year in Luxembourg with me looking at doing this thing that I was doing, being a parent to the children and a supportive spouse to my wife and we wanted to travel all the time. That was one of the goals of living in Luxembourg. So we did every other week on average, we were someplace else. We would drive to Delft or Bruges or uh, Arlon or Paris. We went to Paris a lot uh, by car, by train. Um, we also rented apartments in Rome and Barcelona. We flew to London, we got around and I was never not in the process of planning the next trip or two and booking hotel rooms and we wanted a place that would be in the middle of town but we could park at and take the dog. It would fit all of us and not be too expensive. This became my specialty, finding these hotels. Um, I went to wine tastings and tea, coffee mornings put on by the, uh, the ladies club of Luxembourg. Um, I joined a tennis club. I did all these things as a way of having us have a life. We didn't know when or ever we would ever come back to New York. Uh, we left and put a few things in storage, but mostly we filled up a shipping container with everything we owned and we moved it to Europe. We didn't have a plan to come back to America. We didn't have a, a next destination in mind. We didn't know how long we'd be there. It could have been permanent. I thought it was my job, my perhaps 35th job of my life, to do this, to make us have this new life there. And it had never occurred to me until I was doing it that it is a sort of job, that making new friends is a sort of job. And it's, that's the job that I hadn't done since I'd gone away to college when I, you know, 25 years earlier. At this point in my life, I never needed to make a whole new set of friends en masse. But I did here in Luxembourg. We moved there, we didn't know anybody. Um, after a year of doing this, I thought that I'd accomplished a bunch of things. I didn't crash as much anymore. I came to an understanding with the garagiste about the types of lectures I was willing to endure. Um, I settled into a good routine of cooking, cleaning. I hired a cleaning lady, so I no longer had to scrub the toilets, which I really hated doing. Um, we were getting along just fine, and that one year was all I'd given myself to do nothing but this. And then the boys, first day of school, our second year there, and I dropped them off at school, and I went to a cafe with a computer, and I opened up a word processing document, and I typed the expats at the top of the page, and I started writing my first novel. And that was, um, it was eight years ago, and that, that novel I was writing, I didn't really have a clear sense of what sort of book it was going to be. I knew that I wanted it to be set in Luxembourg, and it was going to have a protagonist who was someone like me except a woman, someone who moved abroad and didn't have a job anymore and was at wit's end with how to create a life this way. And I was writing this book for a few months when I realized that I was writing a very boring book. 
And what I was doing was getting a bunch of gripes off of my chest and writing a book about my life, which in large part was boring. And some of it was fun, but it was not exciting. It was not, it was not the stuff of a novel. We were not in any grand crisis in our marriage, my wife and I. We didn't have any big problems with the children. We didn't have any big financial troubles. We didn't, I, we didn't have a plot to this book. And while I enjoy reading novels that don't have much of a plot, I think there's a tremendous onus on writers to be really good at everything else if there's not going to be a plot. And I was not confident in my own ability to write a plotless book. So I put the book aside and I tried to think of what, how can I turn this into something that's not so boring? Um, because I didn't want to write a boring book. Uh, and I started thinking about the people in my new life, some friends, some acquaintances, and an experience I had in a playground uh, a month or so earlier. Now, I went to playgrounds all the time. Luxembourg has terrific playgrounds filled with really tall, very dangerous climbing apparatuses of the sorts that we don't have in America because we'd never stop suing each other. Um, but in Luxembourg, people don't really do that. Uh, so I spent the time in all these a variety of, we alternated playgrounds depending on the weather. There were some playgrounds where it was better to go in the rain because there was a place where parents could sit out of the rain while children climbed their tall, dangerous climbing apparatuses and always with one eye trying to prevent kids from falling which I didn't realize until after the fact. You can't actually prevent children from falling. You can only beware, aware of it when they fall, which was how I was aware of it when one of my kids fell off one of these dangerous things and came to me with a, this is a kid who has cried maybe five times in his life and tears were streaming down his face. And I took him to the emergency room. And this, this was really one of my worst nightmares as needing to go to a hospital with an injured child, my injured child, and needing to negotiate that in a language that I didn't really speak. That was really horrible. But it turned out relatively okay. He had a broken arm. Uh, he got a cast on his arm. We left, we got some uh, painkillers for him. And of this whole experience, by the way, there were three costs associated with it. The medical care, the painkillers, and the parking. And at two euros, the parking was by far the most expensive. The medical care was, of course, free, as it was for everybody in Luxembourg. And we're not citizens. We're just people who showed up hurt. And everything, all medical care there is free. And they, the medicine cost something like 25 cents. I don't really, didn't, never understood why you needed to pay anything if you're going to pay that little. But that's what it was. Um, but. I went to playgrounds all the time, and I made small talk with people sitting next to me on park benches. They were mostly expats, mostly women, mostly English-speaking, although not necessarily native English speakers, but everybody in Northern Europe speaks English now, in Germany, in Sweden, in Denmark. Um, they, everybody speaks English, and so that's what I did. And uh, everybody, for the most part, was very friendly and forthcoming. If you're not friendly, uh, being an expat is a very bad job for you because that's one of the things you need to be in order to to have any sort of life and any sort of friends is be willing to talk to strangers. 
Um, this one woman who I sat next to one day, I recognized her from school and I made the requisite small talk with her and I noticed uh, after a few questions that she was unwilling to tell me anything at all that was specific. When I asked her where she was from, where her family was from, she said literally, oh, we've moved around a lot. Um, I asked her what her husband did. She said, oh, he works in finance. Everybody in Luxembourg works in finance. Um, she wouldn't give me any direct specific answers to any of my questions, and I began to wonder why. And one of the first things that occurred to me was that she was, or her husband was, a spy. This is uh, one of the three capitals of the EU and the private banking capital of the world and a place where 50% of the people who live there are expats and uh, somebody is a spy. <laughs> there are American spies there, there are British spies there, there are all sorts of spies there. That's where spies go. Um, but she was too ham-handed about it to be a spy, I thought. So I, I didn't understand what, why would, the, the reason to not give anybody any answers is to be hiding from something. And I thought maybe she had done something awful in America and they'd fled to Luxembourg as a way of avoiding that. Or maybe he had gone to jail in disgrace and they'd come to Luxembourg so that all their friends wouldn't be harassing them all the time anymore. I conjured up all sorts of scenarios of why they would be in Luxembourg and not admitting to where it was they were from or what it was that, that either of them were doing now or had done. And it occurred to me that in some families, in some households, one spouse doesn't necessarily completely know what the other one does for a living. And a lot of the women I knew had had careers as uh, psychologists and medical doctors and chefs in South Africa and Stockholm and uh, branding expert in London and they'd come to Luxembourg and their husbands all worked in finance and they'd gotten new jobs and lots of people had internalized a couple of lines, a couple of sentences of what she could say to explain what it is that her husband did for a living. But when I pressed further and said, but what does that mean you think he's doing right now? And why, for example, is he in Monaco doing it? Um, there were often no specific answers. And I, my wife has always worked in book publishing and I'd always worked in book publishing. And for years we'd also worked in the same company and sometimes we'd been in the same meetings. And I knew very specifically what she did for a living and what she did every day. But I realized that a lot of people don't. And not just specifically in one minute, but broadly over the course of the day, what the hell are you doing? And if you have like four children and you've moved four times into three different continents, I imagine at some point one person might stop asking, what is it that you do all day? And that's when I realized that that's what I wanted to go on in my book. That one of these spouses would be doing something completely different from what the other thought. And as I started working on figuring out what would go on in this book, I also realized that that could be true for both of the spouses. They could both be lying to each other about what it is that they were doing and that one of them could be a spy. And that's what the expats is. 
That's what the expats was. And I got so excited to write this sort of marital spy book um, that I wrote it extremely quickly. And in the meantime, we decided to move back to America, that my wife was working for Amazon. And um, moving to Luxembourg to work for Amazon was an exciting adventure. But her next job working for Amazon would be in Seattle, where no, neither of us particularly wanted to live. And if she was going to not continue to work for Amazon, there was no reason to move to Seattle once for a couple of years. So we decided to move back to New York, and we did. And I finished working on the expats and decided to do another similar book, which is The Accident, which takes place in the world of book publishing. And then for my third book, I came back to this idea that we don't necessarily know what our spouses are doing for a living, but with the added twist that sometimes we don't necessarily know what exactly we are doing for a living. And one of my many jobs when I was in college was a summer spent working for an advertising agency specialized in campaigns that could work across a dozen different languages, for example. So a campaign for Euro Disney across all the languages of Western Europe. Or conversely, a campaign that would be in one language, but across many different uh, cultures. So uh, I think it was Coke for all of South America. Um, the creative of these campaigns was very simple, uh, but it looked from the outside like it was very hard stuff to do. The account stuff I didn't completely understand, but I was only 17 or 18 years old, and all my colleagues seemed to speak four or five languages and smoke two cigarettes at once, and people were constantly getting on planes to go to Europe or South America to handhold clients at a moment's notice. Or that's what they told me they were doing. I had no way of knowing what the hell they were doing, and I had no way of knowing what I was doing. I was a photocopier. Um, I answered phones. I filed. Uh, I did all sorts of things. This was before normal businesses had any sort of internet. There was no way for me to know, no way for me to check what the company was. I had been given a piece of literature that said, this is the name of the company, and this is who owns us, and here's your, the person who's the human resources contact. Um, but none of that was verifiable in any way. I didn't know what exactly this company was doing. I believed what they told me, because why not? Except sometimes it may not be true that what the company tells you they're doing, they're really doing. And the owner of the company, the owner of the dry cleaner, could be a horrible person. And you don't know it if you just do this on your, as your after-school job a couple of days a week. We don't necessarily know what is the agenda of the companies we work for. And of all the companies I worked for in my entire life, I never once tried to verify what exactly is at the top of this food chain, and what does this person do with the profits, and what's the goal? One of the companies I worked for, I still do work for, the largest publisher in the world, now called Penguin Random House. 
It's owned by Bertelsmann, which is a media conglomerate based out of Germany. Um, my wife works for this company now. Together we have worked for Bertelsmann companies beginning back when I was at Dell Puzzle Magazines, which was owned by Bertelsmann. Uh, we've spent 30 years maybe combined working for this company. They're my publisher now. Um, it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I thought to look into who owns Bertelsmann. It's a private company owned by a family in Germany. It's the biggest media company in the world. All their profits go to something called the Bertelsmann Foundation, which I don't know what they do. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Chris Pavoni and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if Pavoni first travels to all the places he writes about. When we were living in Europe, uh, we traveled constantly, and a lot of those locations have shown up subsequently in my books. But um, I really, in my, the, the expats in the second book, The Accident, I used a lot of locations, and I ran out of them. So for the past couple of years, I have made it a habit a couple of times a year to get on a plane to go somewhere for the specific purpose of going to a place to write about. Um, and I'll, some, of, some of the locations in my third book, the, you're the Travelers, including Iceland, were part of that. Iceland, though, um, as, who here has been to Iceland? You've been to Iceland? Anybody else? Um, it was really one of our greatest vacations, and especially with our boys, who were, I think, nine years old at the time. Every day we did something with them that was so great for little kids to do, the geysers and the glacier hiking and the whale watching and everything. It was just one fantastic thing after another. It was, it was terrific. Um, so I, I've used all the places I've been in the past few years, but I've also been to all of the places I've written about. Our next question is whether Pavoni can share the names of celebrities he has been a ghostwriter for. <laughs> Um, no, that's not, that's not part of the ghostwriting deal. Um, but ghostwriting is, it's a really terrific job for a short amount of time to do. I had a great time with it, in part because if, when your name is not on it, it's very easy to let it go. As in, I don't really care. If you want to change the sentence in this way that I completely disagree with, I don't care. That's, it's your name on it. It's your voice we're trying to capture here, and realizing that I could let something go like that was incredibly liberating, and I never really felt that before. And I felt, as a, a book editor, one of your main jobs is, in fact, to argue with authors vehemently about mistakes you think they're making and to win, um, and to not let anybody do anything irresponsible. But as a ghostwriter, it didn't really matter. There was going to be an editor who could argue with that too. And that, that editor, that was the job. My job was to do what the author wanted me to do. And 
it was great to be able to let go. It was also, you know, the books that I wrote, the subjects I was writing about, this book about weddings, which weddings, I eloped, so I, don't, I never really had the whole wedding thing, but as it turns out, a book about weddings is a book about flowers and food and cocktails and um, arranging a party and chairbacks, which I didn't know what they were, uh, and all these other little subjects about which I, for the most part, cared nothing. But I realized that that didn't matter, that I would sit in this room while this guy who was on television, he still is on your basic morning show wedding thing. He's the guy who's on television talking about these fabulous weddings. And he knew so much about all of these subjects that it was simply interesting to listen to him talk about it and ask the occasional question, what's that purple flower? And he would know and tell me and I would write it down and type. And it was, it was this abstract sort of thing in the same way that in college taking a class that I knew was not gonna have any bearing on my life was the same sort of abstract learning. Like just sit there and learn it and it could be fun is what I ended up thinking of it. So I forgot all of that, but when I knew it, I knew it and it was fun. This question is about how Pavoni was able to succeed in living abroad with such limited language skills. There are all these things that you learn I'd studied French in high school and a little bit in college, and I knew how to have uh, a lot of normal conversations about a lot of normal subjects, but at no point in a normal learning French education do you learn to describe the different parts of your car that you've crashed. Like, that's not a part of it. And there are all these practical things, I realized, that are not a part of language education because for the most part, they're geared toward having uh, social interactions and not necessarily professional ones. Needing a plumber, my God, needing a plumber. And the, so, the worst of it really was that the, a lot of the tradesmen in Luxembourg spoke first and foremost Luxembourgish, which was a strange sort of Flemish Germanic dialect that they, Luxembourg revived after World War II as a way of reasserting their national identity against Germany, which had occupied Luxembourg brutally during World War II. And before World War II, the main language of Luxembourg had been German. Then after World War II, they reasserted Luxembourg and started teaching it in schools um, as the, the language that you learned every subject in, in public school in Luxembourg in elementary school is Luxembourgish. And that's the main reason why no expats put their children in local public schools in this way that people are happy to put their children in French public schools where the kids can learn French, but there's no reason to learn Luxembourgish. It's, it's a language that is barely even spoken in Luxembourg. It's like a secret code. And I think part of that is a way of also repelling expats. Expats don't really, in Luxembourg, speak Luxembourgish. You learn to say five different things and that's it. Other than that, you don't. But the tradesmen, they do speak primarily Luxembourgish and their French is rough um, to understand. And uh, the closest that they, you can get to communicating is in, in German, which I decided to just take a complete pass on. Um, so I was at a real loss with plumbers. 
This audience member wonders what Pavoni's process is like for creating plot in his novels. Well, it had never really occurred to me that the main goal, my main goal at least, the, the sort of book that I wanted to write, the sort of crime novel I wanted to write, is, revolves around a constant refreshing of questions and a long-term withholding of answers. And I realized that that's something I like in books and film and television and something I wanted to do myself. And what I mean by this is um, I'm on a constant quest to introduce into your mind as a reader questions you might have, small ones and large ones. Small, a character has a scar on his face, but that's all I'm gonna tell you on page one, and I'm not gonna answer that until page 300. Um, and large, as in something horrible may have happened to this person, but you're not gonna find out for a while, and I will provide little bits of answers, but almost only in the context of opening up other questions. And this is something that I hope no reader actually recognizes I've done, but it's something that I want you to simply feel as you're going through the course of the book that there's always something you want to know. And there are lots of things that you want to know. There are lots of pieces of information that are missing. And I'm not trying to draw attention to the fact that there are pieces of information missing. I'm trying to put little pieces of information out there that beg other questions. And in large part, I think that's what thriller and mystery plots are, this idea that you need to find out something. And you need to find out not just who did it or what it was, but you need to find out everything. And you don't know any of it. And um, I think the more urgent the questions are, the more fast-paced the book is. But a lot of the most urgent questions are about um, mortal peril, and I don't, as a reader, tend to enjoy those books the most when the, the whole premise of the tension is the fear that the protagonist is going to die or that somebody else is going to die. Those are not the sorts of books I want to read, and they're, so they're not the sorts of books that I want to write. And if there's not going to be much in the way of mortal peril, there needs to be something else that's really strong that we're rooting for as readers to have the protagonist or other characters um, not have happened to them. And for most of my books, that thing is getting caught in a lie. And that's one of the main things that my books share in common is that they all revolve around characters who are lying to somebody who's intimate in their own lives about something very important. And as a reader, you don't know this at the beginning of the book. And you, it may even be in the middle of the book that you don't know this, that I, I want you um, to think that the book is about one thing, and somewhere in the middle, you will find out that that's not at all what it's about. This question is how long it took Chris Pavoni to write each of his books. They, have, they were all a similar length of time about two years of work, of which uh, less than half of it was writing the first draft, and the rest was 
revising and waiting for comments um, and re-revising and I revise a lot and I throw away a lot and I want in the future to revise less and throw away less uh, and I was hoping that for my fourth book I would have a whole different approach and I'd only write stuff that was going to end up in the book um, but it's clear to me that that is absolutely not happening. I've already written a full-length book and I'm still at least 150 or 200 pages away from the end, which is an unacceptable length. And so I realize that I will be deleting tremendous swaths of this manuscript uh, over the summer, um, which is depressing because if there's one thing that's really not fun, it's taking 100 or 200 pages and simply throwing them away. But I've done that for those three books and I will be doing it for the fourth too, sadly. This question is whether Pavoni develops his storyline before sitting down to write. Uh, with the exception of the expats, which when I started writing it, I didn't know what the hell was going to happen in the book, and I didn't know what sort of book that it was going to be. But then once I realized what, the book, what I wanted the book to be, I created an outline, and I plotted it out pretty uh, down to some little details. And then I started writing it and filling in those one-line chapter descriptions with actual chapters. And as I was in that process, other ideas occurred to me. Uh, and so I changed the outline a little bit to accommodate a new twist or a new character. Um, and that's sort of how it went for all three books, that I, I have an idea. For the book that I'm writing now, I started off with a list of 10 reveals, important discoveries that you as a reader would make along the way. And uh, I've now written uh, about a book, book's length of work there, but I've since taken away a couple of those reveals and added three or four others. So there are things that um, I changed my mind a lot. And I'm not, I don't think I'm being, being fickle about it, but it's one thing to plot out a book on one page just sitting there and then it's something else entirely to fill it in with dialogue and action and realize this doesn't make all that much sense and why would this person do that and this is not that credible. And the idea of the credibility of the whole thing is something that I'm, I'm constantly bearing in mind and often struggling with and uh, this is I think that one of the, the big defining aspects of literary versus commercial fiction. That on the literary end of things, everything is completely credible, it's completely real to life, um, but there's not that much plot because there's not that much plot in life. And then at the other end of things, in the mysteries and thrillers with your, your rogue cops and your serial killers and all this stuff has no basis in reality at all. Um, but it's exciting as hell. And I think both of those can be great books if they are consistent within themselves. So the really exciting book, you don't really want 50 pages all of a sudden of household drudgery um, because that's not that book. And in the book about household drudgery, you're not gonna all of a sudden have a serial killer. And in the same way that in watching a James Bond movie, you know, they drive a plane off a cliff and then someone jumps off a cliff and climbs into the plane in middle air and like it's there's no basis in reality at all 
But that doesn't bother me or I think anybody because it's consistent with it, its own ridiculousness, that it's not pretending to be reality. It's, it's upfront about being outrageous in its impossibility. Everything about a James Bond story is impossible. And in that range from completely impossible to 100% it happened to me today is where novelists need to make their choice of where to dwell. And my choice has been that I want to be just on the far side of implausible. That I think my books, 99% of it could happen to you, to me. But that last 1% of it can't. And I'm all right with that. That's, that's my goal there. That I, I don't want my books to be exactly like real life. I want them to read a lot like real life, but then have this 1% of stuff happening that doesn't happen to anybody. And that's what makes them thrillers. This question asker wonders if Pavoni always knew he wanted to be a novelist. In this vague sort of same way that I want also at some point wanted to be the shortstop for the New York Yankees. Um, but <laughs> at what point being the shortstop for the New York Yankees is, is something that you need to really achieve. Um, being a novelist is really just something you need to give yourself permission to try. And you also, I needed to give myself the, the, the room and the space and the time to try it. And uh, it's all, it's still, it always seemed to me to be a thing that may be slightly out of reach, but there was this moment in my life when we were living in Luxembourg where it was not, it was in reach to do that, to at least try to do it in a way that looks impossible when you have a 60 hour a week job or all sorts of other things that I think get in the way of giving yourself permission to do this. Um, so I'm really, I'm grateful that I've been allowed to do it. Uh, and it's not a, really what I thought it was going to be, but it's a very enjoyable existence most days. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what the publishing world is like and how difficult it is to publish a book today. Sure, it's, it's not the simplest thing in the world or not the easiest thing to get a publisher to take on a new author, but um, it also happens tens of thousands of times every year. It's not an uncommon thing. All publishers, all of them, they come to work, every editor comes to work every day hoping to discover something new. That nobody gets into the business because it's fun to say no. Um, most editors say no 99% of the time and for some people that's a thousand projects a year. You say no 990 times, but that, that's not fun for anybody. What's fun is saying yes and saying I love this project, I can't wait to publish it. And I, don't, I think that it's not true a lot of people like to believe that it's not true, that there are all these fantastic books floating out there in the world that can't find a publisher. I don't think that's true. I think what's true is there are all these fantastic books in the world. Some of them don't find the right publisher, and that's a hard thing to do. But there are a lot of publishers who have a lot of different specialties. And I, I lived in New York City at a publishing house that published 100 fly fishing books a year. Nobody in New York City fly fishes. Like, I, you know, this is, and these books, in a good, a good book, 
a successful financial operation for us would be to sell 2,000 copies. And at 2,000 copies, 2,000, Jesus, that's not much. 2,000 readers, these books were profitable. That's one part of publishing. There's another part of publishing where if you don't sell 200,000 copies, it's a disaster. So there's a, a lot of different ways that it gets done. And I think it, it requires a lot of homework from some writers to figure out where in this publishing ecosystem they ought to live and not make the mistake of thinking that every book deserves a gigantic audience because most of them don't. And I'll, I'll leave you with this, at, it's both depressing and liberating piece of information that the single best-selling new novel of any given year, whatever it was last year, God, I don't remember what it was last year, there's Gone Girl a couple of years ago, Fifty Shades of Grey, The Girl on the Train, blah, blah, blah. These books, the best-selling book of the year, will be read by 1% of Americans. So if 99% of the people don't read your book, you have a success. And that's not that many people in the overall scheme of things. It's not movies. You don't need 50 million people to see it. Um, for some types of books, you only need a couple of thousand. And maybe for a lot of those books these days, self-publishing is the answer. When I worked in book publishing, there was really no such thing as that. So I don't, I, and I've not kept abreast because it's not the part of the business that I'm in and I, I don't care. Um, but that is a huge part of the business and I think it's a very credible way to do a lot of publishing these days. Uh, so that's it. Um, thank you. Thank you all for coming and braving the thunderstorms. That wraps up our Washington County Library R.H. Stafford event with Chris Pavoni. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Richard Zacks, who spoke at Hennepin County Library, Southdale, on Tuesday, March 7th. Richard Zacks is a journalist and historian, best known by many for his gripping, well-researched books on topics relating to the golden age of piracy. His newest, Chasing the Last Laugh, tells the tale of American humorist Mark Twain's round-the-world comedy tours. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just made too. Thanks again to those who make Club Book possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.